All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is our last week in our series, but I was so not wanting to let go that we're going to go through the whole 1 Samuel starting in chapter 8. I'm just kidding. Um, but we are going to spend a little bit of time there. It'll make sense when we get to it. Don't worry. Um, so I... Um, I want to tell you a story first before we jump in too far. Uh, before Ellie and I, when Ellie and I were uh, first married, before we had children, uh, we had our first child. And our first child was a dog. And uh, like many people, we decided to practice on, on something before there were kids because we thought it'd be way too easy to mess up a kid. So we got a dog. And uh, we talked a lot about what kind of dog we should get. And I think maybe just because Ellie was a photographer at the time, you know, focused too much on appearances or something, I don't know, she insisted on a Siberian Husky because they're, you know, the coolest looking dogs, I guess. And, uh, and so we, uh, she found one, a puppy, and she paid a deposit for the puppy. And then we did, uh, we wanted to learn about them. So we did what we did back then when we wanted to learn about anything. We went to Barnes and Nobles because we had all the time in the world. And we took every book in the store on that topic. And of course we didn't buy them. We just went and sat down at a table and we read all of them and spilled coffee on them and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and so I got every book that we could find, I could find on Siberian Huskies and how to train them, what to do with them. And very quickly I could tell that the theme in these books was unless you are planning on building an actual dog sled team don't buy a Siberian Husky because they are a wild, uh, vicious animal that uh, is probably not the best. Um, and so I read all these things and I was like, huh, that sounds like not a great uh, idea or investment um, into our future. So I, I told Ellie this and she became very emotional. Uh, she cried and she was like, I really want this dog. So, um, and you know, I was like, well, we did pay the deposit. So, um, we ended up getting this dog, and uh, it was not very long until we realized that our options were uh, learn how to uh, train a dog or move to Alaska, which I'm not sure which one of those would be easier at this point, honestly. So we became obsessed. Now, this dog was in insane. In this, I'm pretty sure he was bred with like a wolf or something, too. He was not a purebred. So, you know, there were a lot of questions, but he was more intelligent than both of us combined, and you could tell uh, with what was going on in his brain. You just stare at you, and you're like, I know, I know that you're smarter than me right now. I can, I can tell. He also was, um, you know, pretty uh, scary sounding. He, he growled a lot, and it scared people and he would like we would take him places and he would just like that was how he would say hi to people is he would let out this growl that would terrify them uh, I was great at Home Depot which is Home Depot is kind of like an unofficial dog park you know it's where you take your dog um, and so that was fun but then uh, he also uh, just really liked to um, chase anything that moved including us children cats dogs anything else and try to just viciously bite that thing and kill it so that was kind of a problem so very quickly uh, we learned that we had to train this dog so I became obsessed at that time in my life with the dog whisperer and uh, Caesar Milan the dog whisperer um, and Ellie in the first services I was saying this I think she was like oh man I almost thought we made it this far in our life without him talking about this in a sermon about the dog whisperer and how much he loved the dog whisperer well here it is it was just waiting for the right time the thing about the this guy is he uh, he grew up in Mexico and he spent a lot of time around stray dogs that just kind of roamed around if you've been to Mexico you know that's a thing and what he did was he just kind of observed the way that they behaved with one another and 
what he realized pretty quickly was um, dogs' behavior was dictated by whatever their pack leader was. So he was like, the, the point, the way to train a dog is to figure out how to be the kind of leader that that dog's going to respond to. And sure enough, as we started to do that, it actually started to work. And he calls this thing that you're trying to become the calm, assertive pack leader. And I was like, and this is exactly what we had to try to work on. And the more that we could get it down, believe it or not, the more that this wild, vicious animal would actually start to mellow out and realize that we were the ones who were in charge. Uh, Still, you know, we got rid of him because like, you know, he was insane. And he lives on a farm now, maybe, I don't know. But um, he, we just opened the front door and let him out because I was just, no, I'm just kidding. We gave him to some people and he's happy. Um, we did get another dog and I didn't tell us the first service, but um, the first, he's, he's kind of dangerous in his own way. The first dog was very aggressive um, right, right there, right out of the gate. Uh, this dog is like a little bit more, he's like sneaky. He'll sneak up on you and stuff. This is a picture of my dog now. This is Barry. So that's what we're dealing with now, right? So you probably, I didn't even notice that he was there. Uh, He just snuck up over my son, and then the next thing I know, he's there. And his whole thing, though, is like if you're popcorn, you should be worried, but otherwise, you're fine. So um, we got got away with a much better animal. Um, I bring this up because um, uh, we're in this series in 1 Samuel, and what we're talking about here is a group of people who are desperately hoping for and trying to find a good leader. And what I realized when I was trying to train this dog was as much as I wanted to just try to figure out how to change all of his behavior, it wasn't going to work by just taking that approach. That if this dog didn't see some other thing that was in charge to lead him, then he just wasn't going to submit. He wasn't going to do what we needed him to do. Uh, This is a sort of a universal truth, it seems, that there is this need for, it seems, leadership for leaders. We long for someone to help us figure out what the heck is going on around here in life. That's something that we are desperate for. We look for a person who who we can trust, who has our best interests in mind and in heart, and our hope and our belief is that This person, the right leader in a situation, can help us thrive. They can help our life go well. The Jewish people called thriving shalom. It was this deep-seated sort of peace that meant that everything was good between you and God and the world and that life was going to go well. It was the deepest, most profound sense of peace that you could have. And the Israelites wanted this desperately, and they knew that they weren't experiencing it because they had enemies at their door that were constantly banging to get in and trying to attack them. They dealt with uh, needs for provision. They dealt with wanting a promised land and not having it. They were slaves in Egypt. The Israelite people had a history of pretty rough times. And they longed for the very thing that we long for today, which was someone to look to to rescue them and bring them out of this. Now, those who would hear these words and say, that is not true, 
Maybe you want someone to follow. Maybe those people want someone to follow. Maybe people who are Christians want someone to follow, and that's why they're Christians. But we don't need someone to follow, or I don't want someone to follow. You could go on YouTube, and you could look up people who will talk to you about how, uh, you know, following just means you're like a sheep. It just means that you're looking for someone to think for you and all these things. And then after that person finishes their powerful, persuasive speech about how we should all be thoroughly, independently minded, they'll say, be sure to follow this video and like me and subscribe so that I can continue telling you how things are in the world and how you should live your life. Okay, thanks. Because this is what we do when we come across truth, is that we go, especially the people who feel like they have it, is they go, oh, I got to tell people. I got to tell people how to live. Don't, you don't need someone to follow. You need to be yourself, except for right now when you listen to me and I tell you that you don't need someone to follow and you need to be yourself. It's like a loop that we get caught up in. And the truth is that we do. We do long for someone that we can follow who we know we can trust is going to figure out and make sense out of all this for us. The Israelites were people who wanted this as well. They had a rough history and God provided them with a, a way to have someone to follow. He provided the people with a way to know that if you just live this way, do these things, trust these things, rely on me, you will be okay. You will experience shalom. You will experience peace. But it never really worked out very well, it seemed. God gave them priests, and these priests were supposed to be a bridge between the people and God. They were supposed to communicate on God's behalf to the people and on the people's behalf to God himself. But what we read about in the beginning of 1 Samuel, at the beginning of our series here, was about Eli, a priest, and he wasn't doing a very great job. His sons were evil, his sons were corrupt, his sons were hypocritical, and they themselves were horrible examples of priests. They appreciated the power that came with authority, because there's no shortage of people that long for that. They appreciated the easy, comfortable life that came with being one of the priests born into the family of Eli. And yet, their debauchery and their sin and their hypocrisy was so great that it was tearing the kingdom apart, and it had lost any sorts of integrity for what it meant to be a priest. The result of this, it was so bad, was that God stopped speaking to Eli. He couldn't hear God's voice. And this is a thing that if you remember back when Samuel, the next prophet that God raised up, the next priest that God raises up comes into the picture, he is this young man who hears God, right? God's calling him, he's calling out, and Samuel hears him, but Eli doesn't hear God calling him. Samuel hears him, but Eli doesn't hear God calling him. And finally, Eli realizes what's happening. He says, go and listen to God and what he has to say. Now, God brings up a new priest, someone who is obedient and is a anointed and will God will speak to again because the people need a priest that God's going to talk to. They need a priest who's going to be able to talk on their behalf to God. So then comes Samuel and Samuel uh, is a good priest. He's a better priest. He does a much better job it seems than Eli. The problem is that Samuel runs into is one of the same problems Eli did which is Samuel seems so focused on himself being a good priest and then just sort of trusting that his sons will follow that he uh, fails to intentionally sort of pour into them in a way that Eli failed to do so with his sons. The result of it is that Samuel's sons also become corrupt. Samuel's sons also go by the wayside. One of the things that is so common in leadership is for a person to focus in leadership on what they're doing and what they're accomplishing because they're mostly concerned with how they and their work is going to be seen in the end without giving much thought to what comes later. One of the things that I have been 
so grateful for is that years ago, when the former pastor of this church retired, Tom, he was so intentional, spending the final years of his ministry in many ways focused on setting the church up for who would come next, and then helping me at forming a relationship with me and us being able to be close to this day and confide in one another and talk with one another because it was important to him, not just how he ended, but how the future looked and how the next person was able to to begin. It's a rare thing in leadership. It's one thing that leaders often struggle with is when they begin to realize who's coming next. How have we invested in them? Have we invested in them? Samuel has this same problem that Eli does. And so the result is that the people are again discouraged when they look at their leadership. They still feel like they need a leader. If there's one thing that First Samuel is about, it is about a group of people looking for a leader. Now, Samuel seems to be doing better than Eli because God's communicating with him a lot more and God continues to communicate with Samuel because Samuel himself is a good priest. It's his sons who are kind of giving people doubt about the future. They're going, listen, if they're the future, it's not looking good. It is here where in chapter 8, in the, probably the most important part of 1 Samuel, what sets the tone for the entire rest of the book, the people say this to God. We read this as Samuel communicates. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. So mean. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Ouch. The people come and tell Samuel, You're old, it's time to start thinking about the future, and we know what we want. We want a king who will judge us like the nations. Judge means to rule, means to be in charge of, means to have authority over. We want someone to look up to. The people are tired of being different. What it means to be an Israelite up until this point, above all else, is to be distinct. It's to be different. God's like, you're going to be different from everyone else. And this is the point when the people say, not anymore, God. We tried it your way. Look at how it's going. So now we want to try it the way the world does it. God says to Samuel, he kind of comforts him. He says, Samuel, cheer up. They're not rejecting you. He says, they're rejecting me. Now, I want you to go tell them exactly what they're in for if they choose a king, somebody to lead them like the rest of the world. And here is what Samuel says. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. He's very clear here. If you want a king, 
He will take from you. I don't take from you. I'm a king who gives. I don't need anything from you. But if you look to an earthly king that I provide for you, he will take from you. He begins this by saying that he'll put your sons in front of his chariots. Think about that for a second. Your sons are going to be in front of him and his chariots. They're going to be the front lines of every battle. Your daughters are going to be there serving him and his people. And ultimately what will happen, what this will lead to, is a person who isn't about you. This person is about themselves. Man, could you imagine if that was what most leadership looked like in the world, how discouraging that would be? If most leadership in the world was people doing things not for those they're leading, but for themselves, gosh, I couldn't even imagine what a mess. This is sarcasm. That's how it is. But the people are, you know, very confident, and they're obviously smarter than God, so they say, but the people refused to obey in the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is ultimately about security more than anything else. We need a king who will fight our battles. We can't go to you every time, depending on some priest, and hope that you're going to say, I'll deliver you this time, I'll deliver you this time. They have kings. They have a person who's there physically in front of them that they can go deal with. We don't have that with you, God. Give us what other people have. That's what we're missing. That's what's different. The people are longing for a better leader than the one that has come before. And so God gives them one. He gives them Saul. Saul is a man who is physically capable, charismatic, and in every way the kind of leader that they would choose for themselves. But God chooses him. He is a good man. He starts out as a good man and a good king, a courageous man who is willing to fight and not afraid to run out in front of people and lead them into battle. But ultimately, things with Saul go south. Saul, after David is anointed, begins to go crazy because of a spirit that God gives him. Saul begins to decline. And what we saw ending up last week, really, is... Uh, Saul has gone from protecting the people, leading the people, living for the people, to caring about himself. He's pursuing and chasing David throughout the countryside, using armies to his advantage, using resources for his own vendetta and his insecurity. Meanwhile, the Philistines are attacking villages, they're taking things from people, and there's no one left to defend them. Their king has become a man who after all of his greatness and all the promise that, that was there in him is just taking from the people for his own good. What, what happens after where Matt left us off last week is that Saul, feeling very discouraged because he has not heard from the Lord in a while, Samuel has been dead for some time, Saul has no connect, connection or communication with God at all, which he probably gets used to and just is like, that's just how life's going to be. I'm not going to hear from God, whatever, except the Philistines come and they, they, they encamp and they begin to attack the people. They set up and ready to attack them and Saul freaks out. Samuel's gone. He tries to reach out to God, hear from God through other priests in any way that he can. He gets nothing from God. So he finally goes and he finds a medium or a necromancer, which is basically a person who would communicate to the dead in hopes to be able to tell the future. 
Somebody, he says, find me anybody. Find me a psychic. Find me a person with a hotline. I don't care. I just need somebody who's going to give me some information because God isn't talking to me. So even though Saul himself had cast out all these spirits and all these people and everything, he now needs them for his own purposes. So they find a medium of Endor, it says. And it says that him and his men go to her and and they say, he says, I want you to contact Samuel for me. And she's kind of like, wait a second, is this some kind of a trick? You don't like us. You're going to, are you sure? You're sure? He's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just contact Samuel for me. He'll be glad to see me. Samuel, who's dead, is not glad to see him. Samuel's like, why are you, why? Leave me alone, Saul. I'm dead. Leave me alone. But he does talk to him on God's behalf, and Saul learns this very important lesson, which is when God is being silent with you, you probably shouldn't push the issue because Samuel tells him from God, the Philistines will attack and you will lose. And here's what losing will look like. You will die and your sons will die and your reign will end. You are done as king. Saul understandably doesn't take this very well. He doesn't really see a silver lining on this cloud. It says he just lays down and gives in to despair. Why does he give in to despair? Because all Saul cares about is Saul. Saul doesn't care about the people. He doesn't care about God. He cares about himself. And he's just heard from God that now it's over for him and his sons. He becomes so discouraged that the medium is like, whoa, man, come on, let's get some food in you. Let's cheer you up. She tries to feed him. Everybody's like, come on, Saul, just eat some food. Just try to cheer up, try to be positive. He's like, there's nothing to be positive about. I'll eat some food, but I'm still super depressed. She's, she's very afraid that he's going to kill her still. And then eventually what happens is he goes out to meet the Philistines in battle. He doesn't even really have a choice. The archers shoot their bows and shoot their arrows. They strike him and his sons. He's mortally wounded, and as he knows that the, that the Philistines are approaching, and he does not, he fears what will happen if they get a hold of him. He says to his armor bearer, finally, kill me, run me through. His armor bearer is like, no way, I am not doing that. I am not going to be the guy that killed the king. And so Saul runs himself through and commits suicide. The last thing that we read is this. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Saul has died. And when the Philistines saw what had happened, they just took over these cities and the people fled. Their great king, their great ruler, the person that the people's hope was in to make them like other nations had failed them. And now they were worse off than before. They didn't have a priest that they could look to, and now they didn't even have the king. How could this happen? How could Saul, the man that God chose, who led well for so long, find himself in this place where God won't even speak to him. How is it possible that a person can lead and can be successful and can see expansion and growth and exciting things outwardly and yet in the end be God's enemy? It's something that Paul, one of the, I think, the best leaders in Scripture kind of talks about, and it's what we see even in Jesus' ministry. 
Paul, when he's explaining what it looks like to, um, well, no, we'll say this. Jesus, in one of the most unsettling teachings that he gives in Matthew chapter 7. Steve, can you go back one slide? I skipped ahead, and, or Jonathan or anybody. Um, I skipped ahead, sorry. If, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking, and he talks about people at the end of the time in judgment who will be judged by God who thought that they were doing well. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, 22 through 24. Jesus says this to his followers. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is such a scary teaching of Jesus to read. If you're a person who has ever done anything in God's name. I mean, think about this for a second. Really think about this. There will be people who experienced God moving through their efforts and their work. They saw miraculous things happen. I mean, demons being cast out is a pretty big deal. Something most of us have never experienced. And yet these very people who God will use whose work and hands he will seem to bless with success that other people see on the outside will be ultimately rejected by him. What's, what's interesting here is that he says, uh, I, I did not know you, not you did not know me. That's kind of how I think of it. I think what he's going to say to them is he's going to say, listen, you did all those things, but guess what? You didn't really know me. You didn't really understand me like you thought. You didn't know enough about me like you thought. Whatever the lesson was that you were supposed to learn right before you died or right before I came back, that was the one that you missed because unfortunately that's the one that matters the most. No, he's not talking about our knowledge of him that's going to be the problem. The reason he says, I did not know you, is it's a relational kind of knowing. This is the, this is the word that's used. These are the words that are used for a husband and a wife knowing one another, for people being in relationship with each other. He's saying, there are those of you who will do things in my name and will be successful. By all outward appearance, you'll be the good person who's leading on my behalf. But I don't have a relationship with you. And if I don't have a relationship with you, then it's not going to matter for you. It might help them. And God shows that he can use anyone to accomplish his ends. He shows that he can bless any leader, any person like that to accomplish his ends. The reason why this is so convicting, but it shows us so much about, about, about Paul, is that it shows us that even though he did so much for God, that somehow he could do those outward things without having a relationship with God that would matter, that would truly be known by God. The, um, the other thing that we then see is David. David, on the other hand, comes into the picture, and he's way better, right? Saul's the bad one. David's the good one. This is good. Let's be like David. Let's face our giants. Let's do these things. David is a king, who, a young man who's anointed as king. He's different from Saul in every way, it seems. Let's go a different approach now, a different kind of king. 
And David's, what he brings to the table, above all else, is simply the fact that David believes what God says about himself. David believes God is who he says he is. David's job as a leader is to basically say that to the people. To say, this is why David and Goliath, the biggest story of David's life, it's simply an example not of how David himself is a great warrior. It's about David showing up on the scene and going, guys, do we not believe like who God says he is about, about how powerful he says he is? It doesn't matter that this guy's nine feet tall. Like God is God. Don't we believe that? Don't you believe that? I believe that. And because he believes in who God says that he is and what God says that he is, he is able to slay this giant on God's behalf. David is a king who seems so much better than Saul, right? And as he goes throughout, like Matt talked about last week, though, with all the good things that we want to look at in David and say, okay, 1 Samuel is a book that is about a people searching for a leader. And we finally found a good one. We finally found one that we can say, this is what it looks like. So if one day somebody says, why would you read 1 Samuel? You can say to them, because it's all about how you can be the best kind of leader that there is to be. It's about this guy named David, and it's an incredible backstory. you got to stick with it. It's worth it in the end, I promise. But, oh, man, are you going to learn a lot about the kind of people that we really do need leading us. It's going to start with this guy, David. But then David starts to blow it. He starts to mess up. He doesn't even mess up the biggest ways in this book. The ending of 1 Samuel for David goes a lot different than it does for Saul. David has found himself in the Philistine camp because he knows Saul's going to keep hunting him and trying to kill him. And he's gotten himself in a bit of a pickle. He's basically, uh, him and his mighty men have gone and they've helped protect someone who's a Philistine, pretty high up in the Philistine army. And so this guy has said to him, Achan has said to him, he said, hey, uh, you, uh, you're going to be my bodyguard for, for life. We're going to go attack these Israelites and you're going to be my bodyguard for life and you and your men are going to be right there with me. That's a bit of a predicament. David now is with the people that are going to attack the Israelites, God's people. How is he going to be a part of this? Well, maybe he could just kind of lay low for a while and then he'll kind of sneak away. Nope, you're going to be my bodyguard for life. Yikes, what do I do now? Well, turns out the other Philistine generals were a little bit smarter than the Sakin guy. And they were like, yeah, hey, listen, let's not bring that guy and his 600 guys into battle because, you know, they're like from the other side. Oh, no, 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 but like last week, they had a big fight last week. They're totally different now. They're on a different side. No, man, this is like a soap opera, okay? Do not fall for this. This is like bad TV writing, okay? Do not believe that this guy, David, and his guys are not gonna turn around and stab us in the back. He is not coming into battle with us. And the guy comes back, he's like... Listen, David, this is super embarrassing, but they said you can't go. I'm sorry. Even David gets caught up in it. And he, who definitely does not want to be in that situation, is like, what? What did I do? What did I do? How did I do anything wrong? Tell me how I'm not supposed to be your bodyguard for life. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Just go home. We're going to fight. We'll figure it out later. Anyway, again, I'm really sorry. Bodyguard for life, bodyguard for life. And then he leaves. David gets out of this situation. And as him and his men go back to where they had been encamped and living, they find something terrible has happened. That the Amalekites, oh, the Amalekites, they keep sneaking in there when you're last expecting them, and then they do something else. It's like, oh, we were focused on the Philistines. Here come the Amalekites. They're going to come in and do something even worse. They come in. They steal all of the wives and all of the children and all of the livestock that belong to David and his men. They're gone. They burn everything to the ground. These guys come back. They're like distraught. 
And David, as great as he is, as much as everybody loves David, is like, says, I think I'm going to get stoned here, which is something that comes up, by the way. No matter how good the leader is, they're going to get to a point. Moses did it where they're going to be like, I think the people might stone me pretty soon. We got to figure this out. I got to get out of here. David says it then. So he, 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 though, is someone God will speak to. So he reaches out to God on behalf of a priest and he's like, God, what do we do? Do we go attack these guys? Do we go get our, what do we do? What do we do? And through this priest, through this, this person, God says to him, he says, go and you'll prevail against them. So David and his men, and this is the most epic, like cinematic way that this could possibly unfold, right? David and his men, they are like, all right, let's go. Let's go do it. So they go and they're traveling through the desert or whatever, I don't know. And they come across a lone, tired, weary Egyptian. And they, they see him and they give him some water and they give him some food. They get him all, they get him all strong again. And they go, hey, hey, you feeling better? Yeah, feeling good. So what, have you, what are you doing out here? And he was like, well, um, I was with all these guys and we kind of took all your wives and your kids and animals, but they, but the, but they, they, they abandoned me. So like, I hear you. I'm like Amalekites. What the heck guys, right? Like they left me out here. They were going too fast. I got distracted and now I'm out here. So I am like not with them. I am not with them. And David's like, uh, how about we, let's get some more food in you. Let's get some more water, you know, more shoulder rubs. And then he's like, how about we go find them? Do you think you could show us where they are? And he's like, promise you won't kill me. And David's like, I promise I won't kill you. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll show you where they are. So he takes David and his men to where the Amalekites are. And guess what? Classic, typical Amalekites, right? They're partying their brains out. They're not paying attention to anything that's going on around them. And he's like, oh, this is going to be so easy. I love it. But because the journey was so long, 200 of the 600 men were like, ah, David, I mean, you don't need all of us, right? I think we're too tired. Clearly, these guys don't see you coming, so I don't think that we have it in us to fight. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. So David and 400 guys go. They just, they just wipe the floor with these guys. They take back their wives. They take back their children. They take back all their animals and everything. They succeed. While Saul is killed and defeated, David, through God's hand, once again, is saved against all odds, in circumstances in which someone who was not God's person would not succeed. Then David goes back to the camp, and then it says some worthless men or, or man uh, is like, hey, David, what about those 200 guys that didn't come? I mean, it's only fair that we keep their wives and kids, right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure it made sense in the moment. And David's like, hey, that's not who we are. That's literally what he says. He says, no, no. We're going to make a policy right here, right now. We're going to sign it into law that when we are victorious, it doesn't matter who fights. It doesn't matter who is brave enough to go and risk their lives for us. Everyone will enjoy the, spo will enjoy the spoils of what we take. And yet again, David shows that he himself is a forerunner to Jesus in his grace and his mercy that is uncharacteristic of a good leader because what would a good leader, a good king do if his people need to fear him, if they need to fight for him? If you're a king whose very success relies on the people following you into battle, then when they don't follow you into battle, 
you murder those people or you don't give them back their, fi- their family. You do something to show that they have to follow you into battle next time. But David's confidence isn't in his ability to get people to follow him into battle. As great as this story is, as great as the ending of 1 Samuel is for David, and as bad as it is for Saul, the point of 1 Samuel is not, here's what it looks like when God finally gives the people a good leader. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but if, if yes, we need someone to follow. Yes, we need someone to help us navigate through this mess that we're in called life and this crazy mixed-up world that we're in. But the point of 1 Samuel is not, so here's what it looks like when God gives you someone to do that. The point of 1 Samuel is God saying to his people what he said in the beginning, I am your king. And anyone else or anything else is going to lead you to destruction. This is a really hard thing for us to wrap our minds around in the church. In the teachings of Jesus, he would constantly interact with people in his ministry. I mean, in Jesus' ministry, he's interacting with people. And so a lot of his teachings are coming as he's having conversations with people. And the typical interaction with Jesus kind of goes like this. Hey, Jesus, I've got a question for you. Jesus says, go and do this thing. Whoa, hold on a second. We were just talking. Let's just have a conversation, okay? Let's not get carried away. Go do this thing. Then the person gets to decide, do I follow Jesus, which means doing this thing? Or do I just walk away sad? because this isn't what I signed up for. Man, those are pretty extreme, you know? I mean, not everybody's disciple material. They're amazing guys, right? Yeah, the disciples are so amazing, right? They're amazing guys. Not all of us can be disciples like these. Maybe, but I don't want to walk away saying, there's got to be somewhere in here in the middle where we can figure out some kind of a third option. God says to the people, I'm your king. I am enough for you. I will be enough for you. Trust in me. You will be my people. You will be okay. The people go, that's kind of extreme, God. And we're not ready to become not your people. Don't get us wrong. I mean, we're not saying that. We're just saying maybe if we put our heads together, maybe we can help you figure out a better way to do it, God. Maybe we can come up with a person. Just maybe we'll take some godly principles and then we'll get them to do those things. Won't that solve the problem? We just need something in the middle here, God. It's so extreme what you're telling us to do to trust that you're going to be the king. God's like, nope, that's not really an option. You either get this or you get this. Which one do you want? We'll choose this. Well, okay, we'll see how that goes. We have the hardest time wrapping our minds around this concept, the idea that there isn't actually someone else who will be better, who will come along, who's going to fix things for us. Christians are supposed to be the people that don't see things that way. I don't think that we're very much different than those outside of the church much of the time, and we still look for the same things. I think the best example of like the ridiculousness of this comes from, of course, the Babylon Bee, the greatest satirical Christian website there is. When after a pastor several years ago had, yet again, a pastor had had some moral failings and, and, and a lot of their work was questioned and a lot of their following was shaken and the foundations of their church, they put up this headline, which sums it up well. Um, Nation's church is starting to think having celebrity pastors who are accountable to absolutely no one might be a bad idea. Right? Because what we do is we have, we have people 
who are these great leaders, and we say, we do it on big and small scale all the time. We say, but look at how successful they are. And I'm not just talking about a megachurch pastor. I'm saying in any way we go, look at what a good leader they are. Look at how much people want to follow them. Look at how much I want to follow them. Obviously, God is blessing them, and it's his way of saying, guys, I've come up with a middle option here. Just follow this person blindly. Don't expect them to act like a disciple did or the way that Jesus acted. Maybe they can pick out like one thing Jesus did and do that really well. And then just be like, no, the rest of the stuff, nobody can do everything, right? Nobody can be perfect. Give that person complete power and authority and just focus on the results. Don't focus on anything else. We are addicted to solutions that involve us. And God's message to his people again and again is the same thing. If you want to know how to sum up 1 Samuel, this series we've been in, we've tried to make it pretty easy for you. It's this. God is king. God is the king. We don't need another one. We don't need a person. We don't need a new generation of people to be able to come and to finally fix things or do things differently than what we've done before. That doesn't mean... That leadership isn't important. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use people, although we come to find that some of the leaders that make the biggest impact are in their day completely unappreciated. This is like probably a, a motto I just have up in my room, you know. I was reading about Abraham Lincoln this last week. Arguably one of the presidents that everybody could agree on did like the best and the most, it seems. Abraham Lincoln, who accomplished so much in his presidency, was plagued by depression, self-doubt, the need to please other people, insecurity. I mean, there were so many things about Abraham Lincoln in the moment that made people go, I'm not sure about this guy. He doesn't seem like great leadership material. And yet, the impact that he had, which is exactly what happens with the people who seem to be the most revolutionary that we look back on in history. In their time, they were not appreciated for what they were doing because they did not strike people the way that leaders often do, with the success that people want to see. See, our way of trying to understand who should lead us, how they should lead us, is totally backwards. And God says, I am the king. So if God is king, then why is it that we feel leaderless? Why is it that the people feel like they need someone to come and fix things? Why do we look around ourselves in this world and say, look at the mess that we are in. Look at the problems that we are dealing with. You cannot possibly say that what we need is not a good leader to come and help us. Someone that we can follow. Paul, arguably the best leader in the Bible, in human terms, talks about this. Paul, a man who is an amazing leader who does an amazing amount of work for the church, who talks about himself as though he's like, I believe he says, the foremost of all sinners. When he explains how a person really does look to God as their king, here's how he puts it, and it's very unconventional. In 1 Corinthians, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we might have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, 
who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What Paul is saying here is he is saying that, uh, that, that these things that matter most are not knowledge and information that people learned and made them experts. Paul is saying the very words that I speak to you that are the most profound, that make the biggest difference, are not coming out of my head, out of my knowledge, out of my learning, out of my wisdom, or out of my leadership ability. He is saying the only thing that I can say to you as a leader that is really meaningful is going to come from the Spirit of God. Why? Because the only way to truly know God's heart is to be in touch with his spirit. What that means is that you can learn everything there is to learn about the theology of God, about the study of God, the truths of God and his people. You can understand the history of the church and what Jesus did better than anybody else. You can believe in the truth of God and of Jesus. But if you are not seeking after the spirit of God, if you are not, first and foremost, cultivating a relationship with this king, then he is not your king. He cannot lead you. You don't lead him just by being obedient in physical action. You obey him, you follow him by connecting with his spirit. Ours is a king who wants personally to connect with us. He wants us to be defined by our being in him, not by our doing for him. And that is a very hard thing for many of us to realize. This is why Christian leaders can be successful in their doings and still shallow in their being because it's not coming out of a place with God. But this is what causes so many of us to feel still like there's a void somewhere. Because we fail to see the need for us to actually talk to God to say, God, what is your heart here? Instead, we just go, there needs to be more God in the world. In God, we have the ultimate king. Our problem is not that we need a better version of him, that we need someone to explain it to us differently, or that we need maybe a new generation or new people to be able to come and to finally fix it all and make it understandable for us. The problem is that we don't appreciate the king that we have. We don't follow him and look to him and bow down to him because we don't believe in him in the way that someone like David did at times. And so what we need to be able to do is to see the value of our king and to be able to ask ourselves, do I truly believe that he is who he says he is? Do I believe that God is who he says he is? Or do I believe that I just need more information and someone to help me do it better? We are so prone to miss the most important things right when they're in front of us. I saw a movie a while ago that was based on a book. It was called Into the Wild. This movie was about a, a man um, named John, uh, John Krakauer, I think is, is the guy. I don't think he's the, the guy. Anyway, it is about this boy, this young man, who grows up in a town and a part of a loving family, but feels this restlessness, feels that I need to go out into the world. And if I'm going to experience true joy and fulfillment, it's going to be by discovering the adventures that are out there in the world. 
He wants to go into the wild. So he sets off on this journey, leaving his family, leaving his friends, leaving his hometown. And this film, which is based on this book, chronicles these incredibly epic steps that he takes along this path. And every time that he seems to get to a new place or a new thing or a new adventure, there's a person there. And he forms a relationship. And then he's faced with a decision. Do I go on to the adventure that I'm seeking or do I stay here in this relationship with this person? He eventually finds a, a, an older man who uh, is very lonely, but they strike up a friendship, almost sort of like a grandfather and a grandson. And as he sees this man who has this sort of void in his life, and as he forms a very strong relationship with this guy, he feels the strongest pull ever to just stay and not go on into the wild. But the older man wakes up one morning, and he finds the young man gone and he's left him a letter. He's left him, and he's explained to him why it's the best thing to do. The young man would ultimately, if you know the story, uh, and it's okay to see the movie even if you know the story, because I think most people kind of do, he, end, he ends up dying in the wilderness, alone, having left all of these relationships and all of these people along the way, the true richness that he could find in seeking something else that he thought was more fulfilling. In the letter that he leaves to this man, here's what he writes to him. He says, you are wrong if you think joy emanates only or principally from human relationships. God has placed it all around us. It is in everything and anything we might experience. We just have to have the courage to turn against our habitual lifestyle and engage in unconventional living. My point is that you do not need me or anyone else to bring this new kind of light to your life. Now, we don't believe as Christians that people are where we find our source of life. But the tragedy of this story, and you see it play out even in this film, is a person moving through life with something that is so much more valuable than these sights that he wants to see, this adventure that he wants to live, and yet he misses it. He misses it thinking there's something else out there that's better. And he's even trying to evangelize that message to the people that he comes across. And it's ultimately a tragedy. Why? Because we know, we know the value of relationships. We know that God puts us in relationship with one another. It is in this very same way that we can have the greatest king that there ever will be, the God of the universe, who says to us, I don't even want you to relate to me like people who relate to the regular king. I want you to be in a relationship with me. I want you to know my spirit and I want to know you. To tell us how good and how great and how, and how gracious he is. That it outweighs everything else or anyone else. That it leaves us needing nothing and being completely fulfilled. That all we have to do is believe that is who he is. That is the struggle and where it comes in for us. We're wrapping up our series right now. And then we're starting a new series next week, and we're going to be spending the summer looking at who God says that he is in the Bible. And we're going to be emphasizing certain things about his character and how those things change everything for us. Because as much as we want to believe that the most important thing is what we can do for God, the truth is the most important thing is what you believe about God and trust him. Uh, we're starting next week by talking about how good God is. That's it. 
We're talking for weeks about how good our God is and what that means for each and every one of us and the world around us and how revolutionary his goodness is. If we are a people, we we are meant to be a people, not who produce the best leaders. We are not meant to be a people who behave in a way that is better than everyone else, and we are not to be a people who accomplish more than everyone else. We are, first and foremost, to be a people who proclaim who God is because we believe that about him. Sometimes we make the mistake of doing a better job of proclaiming who he is than actually believing it ourselves. And to those who are in that position, the reminder comes from Jesus in Matthew 7 that the most important thing is your being in him before your doing for him comes later. For many of you guys who are here, who have been in 1 Samuel, we simply have to understand that the solution is not a better leader. It is not a person who's going to come along and fix all these things finally. The solution is us truly believing who God says he is and trusting him in that. As we worship, as we reflect, that's why we worship, is one, because he deserves our worship and our praise, and these things that we sing about are true of him. But it's also because as we sing these things, these things that we, many of us know to be true already, we are reminded of the truth that they are and how much that needs to penetrate into our hearts. Let's pray and worship together. God, you are... God, when we read through 1 Samuel, there are truths about Samuel or about Saul that are, that are clearly the truths of what a good leader looks like. There were things about Saul that, was good, that were good. There are things that we can learn about what it means to be a good leader from Saul. And there are things that we can learn about what it means to be a good leader from David. But if there's something that we take away from there that's even more universal than that, it is what it looks like for your people who you have faithfully provided for generation after generation to still long for their own solution that doesn't involve trusting in you, God. It is very hard for us to trust you. It's hard for us to trust you because of the state of our heart, not because of your faithfulness. God, as we worship you, as we repent of our our doubt about you, as we repent of our addiction to looking for solutions in other people and other things, would you give us just even a glimpse of how good you are, how great you are, how gracious you are, and in that, God, Would you give us an overwhelming sense of peace and of joy and of freedom in you, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.